Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Almighty God, as we gather to get here to discuss this time in church history so often misunderstood, help us to sense how it is you're with us always, in good times and bad, in easy times and difficult, how with you always your church, guiding you through the ways of human history to bring the faithful to the shores of the kingdom of light and joy forever. Help us all, now and always to know the truth, the truth that sets us free. With the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Albert the Great and all the angel saints, we offer you these and all of our prayers. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in welcoming Christopher Chuck. I see um, it's on the, this, this celebration is on the eve of the Feast of St. Michael. So um, a great, a great, a great military, the greatest military victory in history, right? The, the Feast of St. Michael. So uh, I expect all of you to be there to celebrate that. Um, yeah, no, I, I work at Catholic Answers now, and I've been there now for two years, although I've only been in San Diego for one of those years. We were waiting for Alexander to finish school, so I commuted uh, to San Diego for a year from Illinois. It's a long drive. Um, uh, but uh, and, and Catholic Answers is a magnificent organization uh, with, with, with many times the resources of the Institute for Catholic Culture and the radio show and the website and all the wonderful things that we do. But I can tell you this that uh, for all of the good that we do at Catholic Answers in San Diego, we do not have a program like the Institute for Catholic Culture. In fact, as far as, and, and we've got, you know, speakers, apologists, Tim Staples, Jimmy Aiken, all these wonderful guys, and they travel all over the country and the world speaking, but in our hometown, we don't have a program like the ICC. And many of you know how fortunate you are to have this extraordinary program now, five years in this diocese. There are a handful of you here tonight who do not know how magnificent this organization is. I want to encourage all of you to continue, please, and Melanie did not ask me to say this, Sabatino did. Uh, <laughs> and I'm quite serious, please continue your generous support of this organization so to continue to grow, continue to spread the faith. This is the most important work that's being done here. In this. Short of dispensing the sacraments, this is the most important work that's being done here in this, in this diocese. So I'm so thrilled. Five years, they're growing. They've got you know, three full-time employees now and new sound equipment, and we'll see if the video works tonight. And, uh, and very good. But thank you very much. I'm very happy to be back, and I've, I've missed being here. Uh, and I'm, and I'm glad to be here. Sabatino asked me to give this talk, and I said no. Uh, it's much too thorny. 
um, and there's no way I have time to prepare. So he said, could you please do it? And I said, I'll do it in October. And he said, I need you to do it in July. <laughs> so you're, you're about to hear a presentation, right? Got a very short fuse. The one reason I did agree, the one reason I did agree to give it on your handout, everybody has that handout that'll help you follow along. And there's a map, a beautiful map of Italy there, or the, or the relevant portions. Um, the one reason I did agree to give this talk is because I knew that in addition to the uh, couple of things I read in preparation, uh, that I had a resource uh, in my father, uh, Paul Cech, uh, who, who's my father and the father of my brother, Father Paul Cech, the director of Courage International, some of you know. Uh, you should go watch his movie uh, that he produced, everlastinghills.org. You can watch the whole movie. Um, in my father, I had a resource. My dad is a physicist. Uh, he worked. He used to work. Actually, a nuclear physicist. He used to work here uh, in, in, when we were growing up in Bethesda at, at the NRC, Nuclear Regulatory. Well, in fact, when he started, it was called the Atomic Energy Commission. And the Galileo affair has been uh, of, of, of great interest to my father for the better part of a decade. So I knew that I had a resource in my dad that I could go to. And so everything you hear tonight that is of value and is sound, I've stolen from him. Uh, everything that is sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about, that's of my own doing. The Galileo Fair is one of the most studied events in history. If you looked at a bibliography, a scholarly bibliography, you would find probably more than 3,000 entries. And you would figure that after 400 years we would have the story straight. At least that we would be able to agree on the facts, if not necessarily the meaning. But very recently I was looking through the DK Eyewitness Guide to Rome, and uh, it says there in its timeline for Baroque, for the Baroque period, that in 1633 Galileo was sentenced to death by the Roman Inquisition. And in the, in the DK, now they have since corrected this in later editions. In the DK Guide to Florence, however, it says in 1633, Galileo was excommunicated. Now, neither of these things are true. And we might just say, oh, well, you know, these ephemeral guidebooks, they get it wrong. But this image here is of a pillar outside the Villa Medici where Galileo Stayed when he was being examined by the Holy Office in 1633. And in Italian there, it essentially reads, it was in the, in the villa near here, Galileo was kept prisoner by the Holy Office, being guilty of having seen that the earth revolved around the sun. He didn't see that. He did not see that, nor, by the way, was he a prisoner, unless you consider staying at the Villa Medici uh, being a prisoner. I would take that sentence, yeah. Uh, so what, he, in fact, he was guilty of and what he did see or not see, we'll look at tonight. So there are a lot of myths. We've seen a couple. Why has this story endured? Why, is it, why does it hang around? Why the persistent myths? Well, the simple reason is... Controversy. It's a controversial story. And it's a controversy of an especially juicy variety. That is, it involves the imperfection of the church. And there are people for whom this is deeply gratifying. And so I'll start at the, at the very end. If you want to understand the Galileo affair, this is how you can do it.
Oh, my, uh, all right. Well, I'll read it to you. And you shall be hated by all men for my name's sake. Right? Matthew 10.22. But the same is in Mark, Luke, and John. The similar sentiment. This is the way, this is the context to understand the Galileo affair. All right? And there's a, and G.K. Chesterton renders it a little more joyfully than our Lord did. The world really pays the supreme compliment to the Catholic Church in being intolerant of her tolerating even the appearance of evils which it tolerates in everything else. Right? This is in the thing, Why I'm a Catholic, from 1929. Let me give you an illustration of this Chesterton quote. Who here has heard of Antoine de Lorraine Lavoisier? Oh God, his French is impeccable. Where did he get that accent? I, I'll tell you from watching Peter Sellers movies. Right? <laughs> and Antoine de Lorraine Lavoisier. Antoine Lavoisier. Come on, somebody. Somebody? In the back? He, he was a scientist? He was accused the father of modern chemistry. Right, he's the father of modern chemistry. Who knows what happened to him? He was exactly, his head was chopped off during the reign of terror by the explicitly anti-Catholic government of revolutionary France in 1794. Now where's the outrage? Right? By the way, the terror also shut down the Academy of Sciences in 1794. Where's the outrage? Where's the outrage? This, by the way, is the one example. This is the one. This, this is of, of, of institutions killing scientists before we get, you know, to the Nazis or to the to the communists. All right. But where's the outrage? And by the way, look in the DK guide for Paris, eyewitness guide, as I have done. No mention of the father of modern chemistry being guillotined. Now, this shouldn't give us frustration. We shouldn't feel frustration about this fact that the church is held to a higher standard. We should feel joy. We should feel joy. So, Matthew 10.22 is our context. And frankly, you know what? We could leave the story at that. We could, we could end tonight with that. Uh, that is the best explanation for the Galileo affair and why people feel the way they do about it because it gives them an opportunity to hate the church, they think. So, we can leave it there. I think Sabatino wants a little deeper analysis. <laughs> so let's try to put ourselves in the place of the 16th and 17th century citizen of Christendom. Long before the flowering of Christendom, oh, one more, please. Long before the flowering of Christendom, Aristotle, and then followed by Ptolemy, mapped their images of the cosmos. Uh, there are differences between Aristotle's and Ptolemy's versions. But both are geocentric, putting a fixed, immobile Earth at the center around which the planet, sun, and stars revolved. Geocentrism was not church doctrine. But the church adopted the model because it followed the physics of Aristotle, or the word physics didn't exist, it didn't even exist, or excuse me, physicists didn't uh, the natural philosophy would be the word that Aristotle would have used and that Galileo would have used. It followed the natural philosophy of Aristotle and what? It comported with the scriptures. It comported with the scriptures. All right? The di there is a difference. Can we go ahead? There is a difference between the, 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 the Aristotle model 
and the Ptolemy model. Ptolemy, in order to account for things like Mars going across the sky, stopping, coming back, and things like that, added what he called epicycles to to the circumferences, right? And so the the, the planets would spin and then follow along uh, like that. And this is how he accounted for that additional motion. That's the chief difference. There are others, but for tonight, that's sufficient. Now, even among the ancients, there were advocates of the... Uh, of, of another model, heliocentrism, the sun at the center, a fixed sun at the center. The, the chief advocate of this was a man named Aristarchus, but it did not take on. It didn't grab hold. And nobody really puts heliocentrism on, uh, on, on any kind of a firm footing until when? A canon in the Catholic Church, a Polish man who'd had minor orders named Nicholas Copernicus in the middle of the 16th century. And so here's Copernicus's image right there with the sun in the middle, taken from his book, De Revolutionibus. So from Aristotle to Galileo, 2,000 years, roughly, right? Uh, the cosmological view is geocentrism, although in reality it's much older than 2,000 years. It's, 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 it's from the very first day that man looked up in the sky and saw the sun travel across the heavens. There was a compromise model. A man, a Dane, named Tycho Brahe, put the earth at the center, put everything revolving around the sun, and then put all that business revolving around the earth. So it's kind of a hybrid. Now something we need to understand about all of these models, this is very important, is that astronomy and cosmology were two entirely separate fields. Okay, what do I mean by this? Astronomy was driven... Nowadays, astronomy would be in, uh, in the physics department of a modern university, and it would come under astrophysics, okay? And it would be about what the planets are, in fact, actually doing. Then astronomy, or even astrology, because they were certainly closely related in Galileo's age. Galileo wrote horoscopes on the side for money. He was always short of money. Uh, but astronomy was, was, was a discipline of mathematics. And the, the goal and cosmology was a discipline of natural philosophy, okay? Or what we would today call physics. The objective of the astronomer was to devise economical mathematical models or formula to track the motion of the heavenly bodies so that they could, he could predict the location of the planets the, and uh, the sun and the stars. Whether these formula actually described what was going on, the physical reality of the heavens, was not the concern of the astronomer. In fact, most astronomers believed, and most natural physicists took Aristotle's model, and they didn't believe anything. All these people were, come up with the math so we can figure out where the heavenly bodies are going to be and when. And why did they care about this? What would be the reasons that they would? Well, navigation is one. That would be one reason. Yes, to be sure, but uh, the big one, very good. And in f- the calendar. And in fact, in the... In the, in the uh, uh, 1570s, and I'm not going to get the exact date, Pope Gregory gives us what? The Gregorian calendar. And he corrects all those errors in the Julian calendar, or all that extra time that had to be kept, kept getting added. Now we only have to add a day every four years, right? And, and because of the problem of the date of Easter. And the model, the model that the church used... 
Christopher Clavius, Jesuit professor of uh, natural philosophy and mathematics at the Roman College, the center of learning. The model that Christopher Clavius used to compute the Gregorian calendar was not Aristotle's, it was not Ptolemy's, it was Copernicus's. So, there's, the church is not feeling any kind of a conflict right now because the, the, the duty of the astronomer is to track the heavenly bodies and figure out, and, 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 you know, and do the math, and do the math, all right? Navigation, calendars, and then, of course, astrology, astrology too. Now, Galileo thought of himself as a natural philosopher. His, you know, his chief interests were mechanics, motion, dynamics, the physical world, right? And we should think of him as a physicist who made some important contributions to astronomy and not the other way around. And in fact, it's probably because he confronted the astronomical question from the mindset of a natural philosopher that it, it took him down the road that it did, that it took, and it, it took him down the road that it did, the, to, to try to figure out the true composition and action of the heavenly bodies. Until then, the heavenly bodies, and, and, and by the way, none of the uh, very few uh, astronomers or anybody really believed that we could actually know, you know what they were made of. In fact, they, they, uh, all the heavenly bodies at this time were, were made of what Aristotle called quintessence, right? Sort of an ethereal, perfect, weightless, uh, immutable uh, matter. So that is the state of the science. All right, what does the culture look like? Protestant Rebellion, 1517, okay, followed on the heels of that, the formation of the Jesuits, the Council of Trent, uh, and here's the quote I'm looking for, with respect to, and this is Trent reacting, the Council of Trent reacting to Luther, to Calvin, the Council decrees that in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, no one relying on his own judgment and distorting the sacred scriptures according to his own conception shall dare to interpret them contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church to whom it belongs to judge and on and on and on. And this is what Galileo is going to run afoul. But it's important under, to be in the correct context of this story to know that there has been a reaction to the Protestant rebellion with respect to the interpretation of scripture. And here is how it's expressed in the Council of Trent. And then there is the, the scripture in question, right? From the book of Joshua, the Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day that he delivered the Amorite in the sight of the children of Israel, and he said before them, Move not, O sun, toward Gabion, nor thou, O moon, toward the valley of Agilon. And the sun and the moon stood still, right? They only are going to stand still if they were moving. Till the people revenge themselves of their enemies. This is one of those great Old Testament lines, a lot of blood. Is not this written in the book of the just? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down in the space of one day. And there are more, right? There's got to be about a dozen or 20 or so. But this was one that Cardinal Bellarmine, who we'll meet in a minute, was found, fond of. He hath set his tabernacle in the sun, and he, as a bridegroom coming out of his bride chamber, hath rejoiced as a giant to run the way. His going is out from the end of heaven, and his circuit even to the end thereof, and there is no one that can hide himself from his seat. So the sun moves across the sky in Scripture. One more piece of context. Galileo's personality. This man lacked humility. 
He enjoyed humiliating others. He was very good at it. He was a superb rhetorician. He loved setting people up and catching them in a trap and humiliating them publicly. He was self-absorbed. But most of all, (coughs) my friends, he was a genius, and he had that single-mindedness of purpose that we often see in geniuses that blind them to other conversation. The Galileo Affair... My father's words here. An encounter between a man and the church in the early 17th century over the relationship of the Word of God and the work of God with philosophical, theological, scientific, and pastoral sides. It is an involved tale that does not summarize early, easily. Excuse me. And another modern historian, a confused free-for-all in which prejudice, prejudice, inveterate rancor, and all sorts of special and corporate interests were at play. All right. You've been warned. Galileo Galilei was born in Pisa, 1564. Three days later in Rome, Michelangelo died. And in that year, also perhaps in April, Shakespeare was born. That summer, the grandmaster Jean de la Valette and his 700 Knights of St. John held off the Turkish invasion of Malta. Twenty-four years before Galileo was born, a Basque knight who found Jesus at the business end of a cannonball, his name was Ignatius Loyola, founded the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits. And a year before, or excuse me, Ignatius was born one year before the son of a Genovese map maker named Christopher Columbus sailed west in search of the Far East and found the New World. One more date. Three years after the founding of the Jesuits, that is in 1543, a dying canon of the Catholic Church from the Kingdom of Poland named Nicholas Copernicus published his De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium on the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres. The book was a scientific breakthrough of the First Order. It laid out in 500 pages of complex mathematics and Latin descriptions, a new model for the cosmos, one that put the sun at the center of the world. And at the time, not a lot of people noticed. Arthur Kessler, who wrote The Sleepwalkers, would go on to say that it was an all-time worst seller. About 500 copies were printed, and then the next edition wasn't printed for a couple of centuries. Copernicus had not a single piece of observational evidence. Galileo was the firstborn of Vincenzo and Giulia, nobility but not wealthy. According to an old Tuscan custom, the firstborn takes the last names, hence Galileo Galilei, right? And uh, the father of Vincenzo was an established musician, a composer, actually a fairly accomplished music theorist, uh, but to make ends meet, all you music theorists out there, he, uh, he went into the cloth trade. He went to the cloth trade, which is why he was in Pisa. They were a Florentine family. Yeah, I'm looking at the musicians over here, right? And, uh, he went into the, he went into the cl- uh, cloth trade, which is why they were in Pisa, although they were a Florentine family at the time of Galileo's birth. Of course, at this time, Pisa is ruled, is part of the Republic of Tuscany and is ruled by, by Florence. Galileo entered the University of Pisa at the age of 17 to study medicine. There was a doctor in the family. Uh, but his aptitude and his interests were for geometry and mechanics uh, and, and what we would today call applied mathematics as opposed to pure mathematics. 
I once met two pure, this is absolutely true story, in um, Rochester, New York, I once met two pure mathematicians. Uh, they were married to each other, and I kid you not, neither could explain to the other what they were studying. <laughs> they, both, they, both, they, were, they were both teachers, they were PhDs, they taught, and neither could explain to the other. All right. I'm not, that is a totally true story. Uh, Galileo was, uh, was also a pretty good painter and a pretty good musician himself. Um, but he dropped out and he went home. He was a boomerang child, right? He, he goes back to Florence where he tutors math in the family home. He's looking for more money. This is not paying the bills. So uh, he, needs, he needs a recommendation. In order to get a recommendation, he has to publish something original. So he publishes on Archimedes. Uh, he makes a hydrostatical balance, and then he publishes in geometry on the center of gravity and solids. Uh, both of these are were, were, were impressive works for a mathematician of his age. Uh, he takes his work to Rome, you know, looking for a recommendation. He meets Christopher Clavius, Father Christopher Clavius of the Jesuits, who's impressed with the young Galileo, and they visit, and they would later correspond, continue to correspond. Remember, Clavius is the man who gave us the Gregorian calendar using Copernicus's model. With Clavius' support, he gets a position at the University of Pisa, where he works for three years in the math department there. This is not a happy three years for Galileo, in large part because he was a jerk, and all of his colleagues disliked him. And he just was, he was just a very, he was a genius, and he was impatient, and he did not get along with his colleagues. He goes back to Padua, where he gets a position, or he goes to Padua, excuse me, um, which is controlled by Venice at the time. And from 1592 to 1610, he works in Padua. He describes these as the happiest years of his life. 1610, however, um, begins his troubles. But let's go back for a second. Two things to illustrate what I, what I would like to call the sort of myopia of genius that I think afflicted Galileo. In 1595, he's in Venice, which is where he starts to develop his theory of the tides, which he attributes to the rotation of the Earth. Now, of course, we know that's wrong now. That's attributed to the gravitational pull of the moon. But he observes the sloshing of water in the boats in Venice, and this uh, makes him think that the rotation of the Earth um, is causing the tides. And as he pursues this, he develops a model of two tides a day. Well, of course, there are four. We know that. So first he attributes that to, well, in the Mediterranean, the seafloor must be different, and that must account for four tides. Well, then he writes to people who are actually on the ocean, and he finds out, oh, my goodness, there's only, uh, there are four tides there as well. But he's so stiff-necked about this, he clings, and he clings to this theory of the tides up until, you know, his demise. So there's one example. There's one example. Another example, in 1597, uh, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, writes to Galileo, and Kepler sends him his book, The Mysteries of the Universe. Kepler gets closer to the, the, what, the truth with his uh, ellipses. Galileo insisted on concentric uh, circles. All right? But Kepler is closer to the truth. Galileo ignores Kepler. They have a correspondence. It's mostly entirely one way. And yet on this question, Kepler is closer to the truth. So Galileo uh, was a pioneer of deductive reasoning. You know, he would take his hypothesis, he would put it against one test after the other, and as it passed these tests, then it gets closer and closer to the truth. But when d data came to him that didn't 
uh, accord the way he wanted with his hypothesis, he would ignore it. He would ignore it. So this is kind of that myopia of, of the genius here. All right. Uh, in fact, Galileo would later remark that it amazed him how much he admired defenders of Copernicus who accepted the model in the absence of any serious evidence. Now, by the way, let's stop here for a second. What evidence would have helped, by the way? This is called parallax, all right? And if the Earth actually revolved around the sun, then what you would be able to do is look at, as this model shows, and here's a way to do this yourself. Look at me and hold your finger in front of your face like out of your thumb. We should get this on video. Is the camera getting this? Okay. Yes, good job, Chris. Okay. So, uh, and then do this with your eyes. Open the left one and the right one. You see I kind of move back and forth. So, your eyes are the orbit, right, of the earth, and you should have this effect with the stars. Okay, but they couldn't detect a parallax. Now, the reason we know today why they could not was what? The stars were a hell of a lot farther away than they thought. I mean, they were way, way, way far away. Here's another way to look at it. Okay, if the Earth, here's another way to look at it. If, if, if the Earth, say this is uh, December and this is June, right? And you're looking at two stars right there. Obviously, these angles should be different. Copernicus put this at 10 million miles. Okay, by the way, what is it? It's about 90 million, right? Okay, but he put this at 10 million miles, so you should have a different angle. But given the distance of the stars, this is like a point. It's like a point. So they didn't have the evidence. The evidence wasn't there. And this would have been, this would have been as, as much evidence pretty much as you needed. But it wasn't available. It wasn't, now we know because we have better telescopes. All right, so let's get back to the story. Parallax. I just like saying that. Parallax. All right. Galileo would never have collected the evidence that he did if it were not for something that arrives on the scene. It began as a carnival toy, maybe patented by a Dutchman in 1608. We're not exactly sure. Uh, called the telescope. Well, we call it a telescope now. Galileo called it a perspectulum, perspectulum, right? He made one. He, Galileo was good at making things. He was, he was, he was a genius. Uh, the first one he made was maybe three power. Okay, and he goes to the Senate of Venice and says, I'll, I'll give you exclusive rights to this thing I devised, right? <laughs> I, I know, it depends what you mean by devised. Um, and the Venetian uh, Senate says, okay, and they give him a contract lifetime uh, tenure at the University of Padua and his salary is doubled, all right? Uh, but basically this thing had been a carnival toy. And there's a, there's a story that goes that it was also used by the Venetians to see ships coming into the harbor uh, so that they could see what goods they were selling, what, what cargo they were bringing in, and then before the ships arrived, they would fix the prices. So I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it's, it, it, that sounds like something the Venetians would have done uh, because their god was money. I, I, I think Matthew would have been a more appropriate patron than St. Mark to the Venetians. But, but in any case, um, isn't that all? I'm sorry, St. Mark. But uh, <clears throat> so in any case, um, probably true. But in late 1609, what does Galileo do? He points his optical tube at the heavens. We don't know why. As Keith McCready said to me, how could you not, frankly? How, how could you not? And, what, and by this time, he probably had something about 20 power. Honestly, that's like a pair of binoculars now. You could go to Kmart and get something better for about 20 bucks. The first thing he looks at is the moon, and he sees shadows and lights, 
right? And he quickly figures out that these are mountains and plains, the mountains of the moon, of course. The second thing he looks at are the, is Jupiter. Why Jupiter? And why did he take the time to, to watch over a period of months and track the orbit of these moons? But he did. His genius. And he realized if Jupiter has moons, or what he thought were stars, he called them the Medician stars, if they had stars revolving around them, then Jupiter might be like the Earth. Oh my goodness, or the Earth might be a planet. Okay, we could be up there as well, rotating around. And he thought the same thing about the moon. The moon looks like it's got mounds on it. It looks like it's made out of like minerals and rocks and things. It looks like the Earth. And that's out there, orbiting around. So, I mean, you can imagine the thrill that he was feeling as he made these discoveries. It's, 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 it's thrilling to think about it. And he published quickly. He wrote a book called Sidereus Nuncius, and Galileo was a great fundraiser. What does a, fundra- what does a fundraiser do when he wants to make a lot of money? He names something after somebody, right? So, so he names the stars, the Medician stars, the Medici stars, right? And he, to seek the patronage of the Grand Duke Cosimo II of Florence, and it works. He's made the chief mathematician of the University of Pisa and philosopher and mathematician to the Grand Duke. Great job. He moves back to Florence, and he's in Florence, and then he has a recommendation from a former student of his, a Catholic priest named Father Benedetto Castelli, a Benedictine from Monte Cassino, who says, if you're right... Venus should have phases. Point your tube at Venus. So he does, and he finds out that Venus, like the moon, has complete phases. And now he knows. This is hard evidence that Venus is orbiting the sun. Now, remember Tycho Brahe, right? The Tycho Brahe model, the hybrid, that would also give Venus phases. That would also give... But he's he's ignoring that. He's ignoring that. In 1611, he goes back to Rome for the second time where he is wildly feted. He's loved. He is a rock star. He does all... The Sidereus Nuncius makes him wildly popular. Galileo writes in Italian. His Latin wasn't very good, one thing, but the main reason he writes in Italian is because he wants to be read by everybody. He wants to be... And he's as much a rhetorician as he is a scientist. So his books... In fact, his, his rhetoric is still used in Italian classrooms right now as examples of, of, of Italian rhetoric. He goes to... He does the cocktail party circuit. He meets everybody. They love him. The Jesuits at the Roman College can't get enough of his telescopes. They want them. Christopher Clavius is confirming the things that Galileo is seeing. No problem. No problem. At a meal with the Grand Duchess Christine, Christina, the mother of the Duke, Bernard, Father Benedetto Castelli has breakfast or dinner with her. I don't remember what it is. And the Duchess is a very pious woman, and she expresses concern that the ideas expressed in Sidereus Nuncius collide with Scripture. Right? So... Castelli reports this conversation to Galileo. Galileo immediately writes a letter to what is now called the letter to Castelli. And when, just so you know, when someone was writing a letter at that time, he intended other people to read it. In fact, he intended people to copy it and for copies of it to be spread around. So this was Galileo's blog. 
All right. So he's so he's writing to Castelli, and this is where the famous line that he borrows from Cardinal Baronius: "The Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go." But the letter is very sound, and it later becomes the letter to the Grand Duchess Christina, and in there. Galileo uses sound Augustinian from St. Augustine uh, methods of interpreting scripture. St. Augustine wrote a book on the interpretation of Genesis in which among the things he warns is that Catholic, uh, Christians should not uh, be too literal in their interpretation of Genesis because then they can look foolish to non-Christians. All right? So he uses ideas that Augustine expressed, where he got them from is an entire, I don't think Galileo read Augustine, but someone gave him these. He had plenty of friends in the clergy. So he came by this information and he wrote, he wrote this, this letter, letter to Castelli that becomes a letter to the Grand Duchess Christina. My friend Chris Bloom, who teaches at the, um, at the Augustine Institute out in Denver, another magnificent organization, he, he describes a letter to the Grand Duchess. He said, it's exactly the kind of thing a grad student would write. It's got all the facts right. It has a couple flashes of, of brilliance, but it's very polemical. It just, it's just, it's, and, and, that, and, that, and that's the tone. That's the tone of the thing. So his detractors step up their game. And let's be clear here, his detractors aren't churchmen. They're the Aristotelians, the other people in the, all this noise about how the priests wouldn't look through the telescope and that kind of thing. Uh, that isn't true. There were scientists who would not. But his detractors get after him. Two Florentine Dominicans uh, give the letter to Castelli to the Holy Office, and it gets reviewed down there. All right, but he does, as I say, he has defenders. He has defenders in the church, and one of them is a man named Paolo Antonio Foscarini, who's a Carmelite from Naples, and he publishes a book in Galileo's defense. In 1616, Galileo goes to Rome to press his case. Three events converge at this time. Number one, the Holy Office puts Copernicus's book on the index, right? It censors it. It's not banned. And all the censor says is that what is in there must be taken as hypothesis, right? Not actually as a physical description of what the world is, or what the world is doing. Cardinal Robert Bellarmine writes a letter to Foscarini because Foscarini had provided him with his defense of Galileo. And the third event that happens Bellarmine warns Galileo of the decision of the Holy Office. Okay? <clears throat> now why? Why did Bellarmine do this? Well, the plain fact was that Galileo had not proven Copernicanism. And there was a clear conflict with Scripture. And Bellarmine, in the climate of the age that we described, is being what any good churchman would be under these circumstances, cautious. And all he's doing is telling Galileo, Caution. He tells Galileo, the Copernican system predicts the phases of Venus. This does not prove the converse, right? That because Venus exhibits phases, therefore the universe is Copernican, right? The Tychonic model, the Tycho Brahe model, could be just as valid. Absent proof, let's take our time. And by the way, let's not start reinterpreting scripture, all right? So in his letter to Foscarini, Bellarmine writes the same thing, and he also says, look, if we found the evidence that the earth orbited the sun, so be it, then we would have to go look at the scripture passages. But in the absence of evidence, let's not do things that are going to scandalize the faithful and give them concern about the inerrancy of, of scripture.
Alright? As he says to Galileo, the evidence in their meaning, the evidence is insufficient to force scriptural reinterpretations that could lead to doubts in the minds of the faithful about the inerrancy of scripture. Very important. Bellarmine's not against science, but he's applying a pastoral solution here to a speculative problem. And we'll come back to, we'll come back to that problem. But understand, he's operating this post-Protestant rebellion world. As I said, in putting Copernicus on the index, they didn't suppress the book. They censored it, saying it's a, it's a hypothesis. The, they, the book had been used to make the Gregorian calendar. <clears throat> the Holy Office had two questions before it. The mobility of the sun, which they called foolish and formally heretical, and opposed to the plain meaning of Scripture, and the mobility of the earth, which they just simply called Erroneous, And all this was written down in an internal memo of the Holy Office. It was not an ex-cathedra statement. It was not a statement by the Pope. It was certainly not Christian doctrine. In the wake of this meeting in Rome, enemies spread rumors that Galileo had been officially enjoined by the Holy Office not to teach Copernicanism. So... Galileo writes to Bellarmine and says, could you please write a letter for me saying that I was not enjoined, that you just told me of the Holy Office decision. And this is in fact what Bellarmine did. And Galileo hung on to this letter. And all the, and in the letter, Bellarmine says to Galileo, pardon me, the doctrine attributed to Copernicus was contrary to Holy Scripture and could not be defended or held. So, you could discuss it as a hypothesis, but not necessarily believe in it, right? This was March 1616, the year that Shakespeare and Cervantes died. For seven years, Galileo held his peace. In 1618, three comets appeared. He wrote his Il Saggiatore, the Assayer, which may be his greatest work on science. Uh, it had so many new and, and fantastic ideas in it, and people regarded it as, some, as, as his greatest writing. It did get him in a quarrel with uh, a Jesuit uh, named Grassi, uh, who actually understood the comets better than Galileo did, as it turns out. Uh, but nonetheless, he writes his assayer. He, he keeps quiet, he keeps his cool for a time, and then in 1623, something happens for Galileo as if sent from above. He couldn't have imagined better luck. His friend, Maffeo Cardinal Barberini, who had been his close friend, is elected Pope Urban VIII. Urban was a progressive man, a friend of science, a huge fan of Galileo's. He'd written poems in honor of Galileo, and he... And Galileo now figures, oh my gosh, I've got the green light to go ahead with my project. He goes to Rome in 1624. He has six meetings with Urban VIII. What was discussed in those meetings? Wouldn't it be nice to have a tape recording to find out? But in effect, we know that Galileo proposed to Urban VIII, now I want to write my book on the tides proving the mobility of the earth. All right? And... The Pope, using the same kind of caution, in fact, that Bellarmine had used, says, no, do this. Write a book on the two world systems. All right? So the Pope is, is, is a prudent man, and he's, and he's telling Galileo, uh, don't write the book that you want to write, which Galileo would have called On the Flux and Reflux of the Sea. Write the book on the two world systems. 
Urban echoes Bellarmine's thought, right? Just because a moving earth could produce tides doesn't mean that the presence of tides proves a moving earth. Galileo paid little heed. Six years later, his manifesto on Copernicanism appeared, dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. This is a meeting between three men. It's like a play. Salviati, who represents Galileo, Sagredo, who's kind of an open-minded nobleman, and a man named Simplicius, who is a pun on the Italian word for simpleton. And of course, Simplicius is the defender of the Copernicanism, excuse me, of the uh, Aristotelian model, or the Ptolemaic model, right, the geocentric model, and Salviati is the defender of Copernicanism. It is a rhetorical work, heavily weighed in favor of Copernicanism. And he probably could have got away with it, but on the last page of the book, he puts Urban's argument, just because we see this does not mean this is the cause. God could have another cause. He puts those words, the Pope, in the mouth of Simplicius, the simpleton. So capitally stupid. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. But as I said, this man had an extraordinary arrogance and a single-mindedness purpose. Well, the Pope, who had been his friend, said Galileo had gone too far. He referred the matter to the Inquisition. But there were two problems. Copernicus's doctrine had never been officially de declared a heresy. And the dialogue, in fact, had an imprimatur on it. How Galileo got this imprimatur is a story we don't have time for. I would just say, through deceits, by, by concealing the fact that Bellarmine had warned him off, number one, and by using his connections in Rome. But the, the censors never read the, never read the book. If they'd gotten to the end of it, there's no way they would have allowed it to have been published. So now Urban is furious at the censors and at Galileo. Then from the archives of the Holy Office, the Inquisitors produce a remarkable document, a report of the 1616 meeting with Bellarmine, in which it stated that he had been officially enjoined, and that the astronomer had promised not to teach, defend the Copernican doctrine in any way. Now this document of the Holy Office is contrary to the certificate that Bellarmine had, and this has been a topic of some controversy, but Bellarmine had died a decade before and was not there to answer the question. The Pope was furious, he had been made a fool of, he had been deceived by Galileo. So in Feb February 1633, Galileo was ordered to Rome, despite the rigors of winter travel and the fact that now he was 68 years old and not a particularly well man. And there before a tribunal of ten cardinals, he was accused of disobedience. The evidence, the injunction, was irregular. It was not signed or notarized as such an injunction should have been. And so the affair devolved into the commissary general of the Inquisition. Without revealing his weak evidence, he tried to get Galileo to admit that he had been enjoined. Galileo says, I might have enjoined, been enjoined, I don't remember. Galileo set himself up. He set himself up. Galileo produces the Bellarmine certificate, which implied that there was no injunction, but nonetheless, 
the, so, the, so the commissary was caught off guard. He called for a German for a time. It was a duel of wits. Galileo was slightly ahead. But the real power, of course, was with the Holy See and the Inquisition. The Pope was not going to have the embarrassment of bringing Galileo to Rome. By the way, when Galileo was in Rome, he was not put in a dungeon. He was not put in a prison. He stayed in the Villa Medici. He went for walks. He went for carriage rides around Rome. He strolled through gardens. He was, he was certainly not tortured, right? But Galileo tried some plea bargaining. He would admit that he'd gone too far. He would write a, 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 an addendum to the, to the dialogue. The Holy Office said no. He was called before the Inquisition on 21 June 1633. Three times he was questioned with respect to his motives. He, he tried to say, oh no, I was actually trying to defend the geocentric model in my book, The Dialogues. That's really what I was doing there. Anyone who had read the book knew this was a lie. Knew this was a lie. They re- the Holy Office rejected uh, uh, Copernicanism's untrue. That is not proven. There was nothing more to be done. On the following day, his sentence was read to him. He was found vehemently suspect of heresy. All right? Suspect of heresy, vehemently, and believing that one could hold and defend as possible an opinion contrary to Scripture. He was to abjure the Copernican system, to be imprisoned at the pleasure of the Holy Office, and to recite once a week for three years the seven penitential psalms. He abjured in the office adjacent to Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome. That was the end of the miserable business. He was never put in jail. He went to live for a time with the bishop in Siena, and then he went to house arrest for the remainder of his life in Florence, living adjacent near or nearby the convent where his daughter, one of his three illegitimate children, was a nun. You know, had uh, Galileo not been sentenced to house arrest and lived out his remaining six or seven years there, then his greatest work, his greatest contribution to science, his work on dynamics and mechanics, which he was busy into up until 1610, right, uh, would never have been published. So the thing that we most value for uh, from uh, Galileo was... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here defending the somewhat heavy-handed way the church went about this, but... Providentially, in God's providence, uh, it came to pass. He remained under house arrest until his death on the 2nd of January, 1642, the year that Isaac Newton was born. All right, what are Catholics to think? I got another, about another hour, Noni? Good, okay. <laughs> what the Galileo affair is not. <clears throat> it is not an example of the church versus science. Everybody in this story is a devout Catholic. Galileo had many supporters in the clergy. Galileo had a devotion to St. Anthony. There's a charming story I don't have time to tell you about his devotion to St. Anthony. The church was at the front of scientific inquiry, right? And where are the, if the church is against science, where are the other examples? Where are the other examples? Oh, oh I'm sorry, there's his telescopes. Let's keep going here. John Cardinal Newman, right? He says, of course, here, it is exceptio probat regulum. It is the one-stock argument, all right? It is the, one, it is the one-stock argument people come back to. Where, where are the other ones that, that, are, that are evidence that the church is opposed to science, all right? And modern science originates where? It originates within Christendom, all right? The civilization created by the Catholic Church. It's not about papal infallibility. The Pope never declared geocentrism as a doctrine, all right? Nor, by the way, has the church declared heliocentrism 
a doctrine. <laughs> As you might expect, it's not a question of faith and morals and good things because, because now we've learned that locating the center of the universe is probably um, impossible or seems impossible, right? As far as I know, by the way, we are the only ones actually thinking about these questions. So, in any real sense, in this sense anyway, the Earth is very much the center of the universe. All right? Why did this happen? Well, I mentioned the intellectual climate of the day. Right? The apparent and altogether understandable conflict between Scripture and the Copernican model. The personality of Galileo who just didn't know when to shut up. I'm sorry, Bellarmine explained to him, this, is a que- this, is a, this could be a question of scandal. Now, perhaps he could have explained it better. Maybe Galileo would have listened better. But I just don't think he cared. I don't think he cared. He was so devoted to ramming this down the throat of the academic community, of the world, whoever was ready to listen. Right? The personality of Galileo and the church's handling of the matter, which has elements to admire, right? Caution and elements, elements to criticize. On the scripture question, it's not for, for, sufficient for us to say, oh, well, in scripture we know that God doesn't have a hand or a foot or the references to God's forgetfulness or this sort of thing, right? We know those are, we, we can accommodate those. This uh, matter of the description of the physical world is of a different order. It's a different order. Because it has implications about the role of the world, the, the earth, and the people on it, and thus the incarnation. All right. So it's a, it's a considerably more significant matter. On the personality of Galileo, among the daughters of vanity, and I think any biography pro or against Galileo you read will describe him as a vain man. Among the daughters of vanity, Thomas Aquinas gives us disobedience, boastfulness, hypocrisy, contention, obstinacy, discord, and love of novelties. Right. He, um, he exhibited all of these. He exhibited all of these. And what he should most be remembered for, it's sad, really, uh, is not this affair, but the work that he did on motion and dynamics. Now, there's the problem of scandal. Uh, did Bellarmine make the right decision, or should he have let the cards fall where they may and let the faithful um, you know, grapple with a question that, or, or, or in their mind that might, might have raised a question about the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, so, oh wait, Colonel Newman, can we go back? Oh, oh no, it's not on there. It's right here. So Colonel Newman writes, he thinks that what Bellarmine did made sense. Okay? Galileo might be right in his conclusion to the earth, that the earth moves. To consider him a heretic might have been wrong. But there was nothing wrong in censoring abrupt, startling, unsettling, veri- unverified disclosures, if such they were, when the limits of revealed truth had not yet been ascertained. A man ought to be very sure of what he is saying before he risks the chance of contradicting the word of God. It was safe, not dishonest, to be slow in accepting what nevertheless turned out to be true. Here is an instance in which the church obliges scripture expositors at a given time or place to be tender to the popular religious sense. Right? to be tender to the popular religious sense. So, this is a pastoral decision made by, made by Cardinal Bellarmine. The story also shows us the humility of the church, because subsequent to the event, 
uh, under John Paul II. The story has been reviewed and the facts ascertained. Um, one of the uh, principal uh, figures in, 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 in the commission that John Paul called together, a priest who taught at Notre Dame for many years, an Irishman, um, died in 2011. I'm forgetting his name just now. Said uh, he was asked by a number of bishops, should we retry Galileo and rehabilitate him? And he said, under no means, you'll just find him guilty again, and you can, and you and you don't need that kind of publicity. But it, but the, but the humility of the church is demonstrated here uh, in in acknowledging some excess, perhaps. I think of the story of Joan of Arc, right? She wasn't you know burned by the Pope, but she was burned by churchmen operating, uh, you know, for the English, of course. But nonetheless, the church was culpable. The church expresses some, or has some culpability there, and yet St. Joan has been rehabilitated. So the church has humility. It would be nice to see some of that humility on uh, the scientific side, which is now largely laden with ideology, whether it's, you know, uh, in, in environmental things or uh, contraception or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so two more things. Uh, this question... I'm, I'm a great admirer of Cardinal Robert Bellarmine. He's the only saint in the story. I mean, he, he's actually a saint. Um, so, he, as I say, he applies this pastoral solution to a speculative problem. He says, uh, okay, well, if the word, if, you, if we come out too fast with this, the man in the pew could be scandalized. Does this sell the lady short? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I'll give you a more extreme example. I'll give you a more extreme example. I understand what Bellarmine did. Uh, in 2007, the International Theological Commission came out with a document about limbo. All right? This is not a magisterial document. Right? But it was directed at women, largely, in the main, it was directed at women who had, uh, you know, killed their children in the womb and were now feeling regret and wondered if their babies were going to be with God in heaven. Well, the truth is, as the catechism says, we leave that, that question to God. Okay, but the tone of the document was that it that um, this is this is you know this is, this could be a reasonable expectation. This could be a reasonable expectation. Now the difficulty with this applying a pastoral solution to a speculative question instead of simply dealing with what we do and do not know, what has been revealed and what has not, in this case is that now the malice of abortion is somewhat undermined. So in this in that case. If you follow me, in that case, I would say that the pastoral solution here probably undermines, uh, sells the laity short, sells the laity short. In the case of Bellarmine, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wasn't there. Would I have done what he did? Probably I would have. I think it made sense at the time. Of course, we're talking about thousands of years of evidence, and then this new guy coming on the scene with something totally different. Totally different. So it makes sense to me. But that's something to think about, because we, uh, we, we see this happen periodically throughout the church history. And one more thing about the story of Galileo, perhaps the most important thing that we can take away personally from this story, individually, is the devil, he's really at his best when? When he's using our armed strengths against us. Galileo was a man of extraordinary strengths, extraordinary intelligence, insight, powers of rhetoric. He had so many skills. He had so many skills. And yet, here the devil was able to take and make Galileo use those strengths, right? So in the end, uh, in the end, they worked again. So something to be aware of, something to think about when we uh, when we consider the Galileo affair. Okay, we'll think for real. <laughs> so.
how did the Inquisition deal with apparently contradictory statements by St. Bellarmine? Did they think Galileo's uh, statement that he produced was forged? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, so the question was, um, the, the Inquisition looked as if they had contradictory statements. Um, this, is, this is a question that doesn't have a perfect answer. Bellarmine gave Galileo a letter certifying that he had not been enjoined... Not, but, but that only that he had been informed of the Holy Office's decision to censor. By the way, all these words mean something. Um, ask a canon lawyer. So to censor Copernicus's work, and in this case, the censor meant the censorship meant that actually what it meant is there, there was there was a sheet of paper that was. Uh, printed, and you were supposed to insert this in your copy, the, the 300 people who had one, right, of Copernicus, uh, saying uh, that this is a hypothesis. This is hypo- And where it's not expressed as hypothesis, render it expressed as hypothesis. That's what, that's what, um, so Bellarmine informed Galileo that this is what, uh, that this is what the Holy Office had uh, decide, decided. At the tri- and, and the second document is the subject of some controversy. Um, there, is a, there are a few people yet, a very few, who maintain the thing was a forgery, but even Galileo scholars sympathetic to Galileo now uh, have, have in the main decided that it was in fact a document of the Holy Office and probably what happened was uh, someone wrote up a summary of what he understood the meeting between Bellarmine and Galileo uh, to have um, com- uh, comprised. So that's why there's a disparity between the documents and when and, and, and the Holy Office. The only people who knew that there was this document between Bellarmine and Galileo were Bellarmine and Galileo and whoever Galileo you know shared that with, but probably. Not that many people. Uh, so this is that this is part of the gray area of the story, and I don't think I can give you a, a clearer answer than than that. They, they, but when they were the, the the Holy Office was surprised when he produced the document because it didn't match the contents of the um, it didn't match the contents of, uh, of Bellarmine's. But you know, if you read, uh, and by the way, this book is is pretty hostile to the church. Translated by a Jesuit, by the way. Um, but the, the case for Galileo, a closed question. The, the, the account of the, if you want a good summary of the trial uh, and, the, and the relevant documents in this in particular, in there, I, I, I recommend it. Uh, Father Coyne, who translated, Annabelle Fantoli, Father Coyne was the, uh, who translated it, was the um, uh, head of the uh, Vatican. Um, Observatory appointed by uh, John Paul I, the only appointment he ever made. Yeah, well, yeah, he had a short papacy. Yeah. So, okay, I went on too long. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm going to go here. Oh, first. okay. No, I'm going to do what Melanie says. Yeah, because I've got the microphone. Oh, yeah. Love the power. I do too. <laughs> Will you speak a little bit on Galileo's devotion to Saint Anthony of Padua? So the please? story goes that uh, he had a servant who had a devotion to Saint Anthony. And, um, of course, you know, uh, the, the, the saint there is buried there in Padua in a magnificent basilica. And, by the way, you can see his tongue and his larynx. I've seen them. They're, they're, they're incorrupt because um, he was a great preacher. 
so the story goes that he had a servant who had a devotion to St. Anthony, and uh, Galileo was troubled about uh, his future or something to this effect, and he took the prayer. To, this is earlier. This is before the, the troubles really began. He took the prayer to... Uh, St. Anthony, and he read the prayer, and he put his hand on St. Anthony's tomb. And by the way, you can go there today and see a billion sweet Italian grandmothers doing this exact same thing. And, um, and he read the prayer, and uh, he went home, and a day later he found out that uh, the uh, Duke of Florence, the Medici Duke, had died, and that he was being replaced by Cosimo II, who had been a student of Galileo's. And so he regarded this as, you know, uh, the answer to his prayer, from, because, because, you know, then he, he had a good relationship from, from that moment forward with the uh, nobility of, uh, or, the, or the ruling class of Florence. Here we go. Uh, yes, my question is related to the history of the historiography of the anti-church false propaganda around this. What did most people believe at the time? And was there a particular period when certain people with particular agendas, you know, that this grew? And can you talk about that? Well, I can tell you very quickly that uh, at, 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 at the time, everybody understood exactly what the church was doing. It made perfect sense. Uh, and it only became a cause celebre for the enemies of the church during the Enlightenment. So it's many... Well, let's see, Galileo dies, uh, you know, in the middle of the 17th century, right? And so uh, the Enlightenment is, um, well, it depends on how we date it, but uh, now we're, you know, a century and some change later, and that's, so it's, it's in the 18th and into the 19th century that it, be, or, excuse me, 17th and into the 18th century that it becomes a bit of a cause celebre. And um, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the things that sort of moves this forward is uh, Napoleon, uh, during, during one of his sojourns in Italy uh, with his army, um, uh, is, is looking to discredit uh, the Catholic Church, and he, and he finds the Galileo documents, and he brings them to Paris with the intention of making them public uh, to discredit uh, the Church. Um, exactly uh, after Napoleon is defeated, the Church recovers the documents, and then, of course, they are made public. You can see them now. Uh, but um, but it's, it's in the Enlightenment that, that the story starts to take on this quality of myth, and then all the stuff, the dungeon, the torture, the priest who wouldn't look through the telescope, all that starts to take shape. The, the church that killed all those scientists. Yeah. I wanted to say thank you because I'm not familiar with this topic in any detailed way. And I thought, I think you highlighted, but just for those of us who are the simplicitia or whatever, <laughs> um, I wanted to just <laughs> go over and maybe underline so that I'm perfectly clear. Um, it sounds as if St. Bellarmine was a very good reasoner himself and that Galileo, in presenting his idea or his his experiments. He used the tides as part of his proof, right? Yeah, the, the tides take up... The, the dialogue takes place... Just hold your question. The, di the dialogues take place over, over a three- or four-day period, and one of the days is entirely devoted to the question of the tides, which Galileo regards as a proof of the, of the, of the rotation of the Earth. So, in a way, he was arguing in a cogent way 
– which would have revealed or at least kept the investigation of what actually tides are caused by and whether or not the sun is static and the earth revolves around it. And you did a great job of highlighting that for me because I think we need to understand that this was still very unclear. Oh, sure. And the proof he was using, he may be – he was using was not even proof. No, well, he was wrong about a lot of things. He – well, I mean, he was wrong about a few things. The tides was one. The – Galileo insisted on perfect circles, which we now know are not the case. Yeah, so he – and I just think this was just – like I say, this was kind of – you see, I know all of you know someone like this, someone who – if he's not a genius, he's very smart and he doesn't want to hear what other people have to say. Or she. Women aren't exempt from this either. I just – you know, I'm going to be even-handed to the sexes. Yeah. But I do think that it's possible – my dad and I talked about this, and I attribute this to him. Had the – this was a period of reaction, and had the Galileo affair taken place in the 13th century, in the age of St. Thomas, when there was a more – how can I say this? A more imaginative and energetic mind about philosophical questions, it might not have had the end that it did. But, I mean, that's – what's that? I mean, it's speculative. We are getting a question from Robert in San Diego online, so this will be our last question just because I know everybody needs to go. But he's trying to clarify how is this not a matter of doctrine if Galileo was either guilty or suspected of heresy? Canonical trials are not held for matters of bad science but for matters injurious to the faith. Sure. So Galileo was found guilty – suspected of heresy or vehemently suspected of heresy, so not exactly found guilty of heresy and for holding an opinion that was contrary to Scripture. But we can distinguish these things between doctrine or questions of faith and morals, which is that very limited sphere of the magisterium that the infallibility of the Holy Father covers. But it's not a matter of doctrine because it's – I don't know what to say. It is a doctrine. It's how the universe is ordered or how bridges are built, you know, are not – and, you know, thank goodness to Newton, right, who comes later and shows us how to build bridges. These aren't doctrinal questions. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.